The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. continuing to study Paul's letter to Philippi, the letter of Philippians. We come today to a passage that contains some of that which is most memorable of this book. I would suppose the first half of chapter 2 is really the part everyone knows so well, the great praise to Christ there. But verse 21 of chapter 1 is also very significant. I actually, if you have a really good memory, I preached on this on Easter as we ended the series of After Death, What? But I believe there's more than one message in any passage of Scripture, and this is not a rerun today. So I invite you to listen to God's Word as I read, and I will pick up beginning in the middle of verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 26. Paul writes, The important thing is that in every way, Whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this I rejoice, yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the holy word of our God. Dr. Andrew Chong was a Christian surgeon, a godly man, an elder at the college church in Wheaton, Illinois, a man who had a heart condition himself. And he had to be taken a number of years ago to Northwestern Hospital in Chicago for a surgery that was hopefully to correct some blockage in his heart, give him more life and more health. But the procedure, unfortunately, went sour, and there was much bleeding taking place, and the surgeon was unable to deal with the situation for whatever reasons. 
And he realized that Dr. Chong would not survive the operation if he continued. So they stopped the operation and sent him back to his room and summoned the family and said, your husband and father probably will not live long. Call the children. Bring them in. Dr. Chong, coming out of the anesthetic, of course, was a medical man, and he was given the information, and he understood exactly what it meant. He was weak and unable to speak very easily because of that sore throat you so often have after an operation. He was in pain, but he motioned to his wife for a pad of paper and pen that was nearby, and his children were arriving, coming in the room, and unable to easily speak, he took the pad of paper and wrote on it laboriously 12 words. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then his wife said it was as if he summoned the strength that he had in a hoarse whisper. He wanted to speak what he added. He said, nothing is changed. Hallelujah. And the next day, Dr. Chong went home to glory to his Savior. What better might a person say to describe the very core of Christianity in the fewest possible words? Many would say that Philippians 1.21 really qualifies as that essential distillation or crystallization of Christian faith in almost the fewest possible words. Dr. Jim Boyce in his commentary on Philippians, called this verse a scalpel that exposes the heart of Christian faith. Dr. John Stott is another commentator who wrote this. I quote him, The person and work of Christ are the foundation rock on which the Christian religion is built. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There's practically nothing left. Christ, he said, is the center of Christianity. All else is mere circumference. Now, you know, there are a lot of people in the world that have never gotten past knowing just the circumference of Christianity. They know all about the paraphernalia, the church buildings, the denominations, the the clergy, the sacraments, the catechisms, the denominational distinctions of Protestant and Roman Catholic and Orthodox and and all of these things, but these are only outward trappings. Christianity isn't trappings. It isn't an ethical system. It, properly speaking, is not a religion because it is not man seeking God, but God seeking man. It's not a philosophy. It is, in its simplest essence, a relationship with the living person of Jesus Christ, the greatest personality in the universe or whoever lived upon this earth. The thesis that I discover in our text can be stated this way today. I tried to reduce it to its simplest essence, and it says this, the beating heart of Christianity is joyful confidence in knowing Jesus Christ as Lord in this life and the next. 
The beating heart of Christianity is a joyful confidence in knowing Christ as Lord in this life and the next. Let me consider with you a first point from Philippians 1, 18 to 20. Here I see these verses telling us that Christian confidence in Jesus banishes all possibility of any ultimate disappointment. I'm thinking of an old gospel song this morning. Someone's going to come up to me and say, why don't we ever sing it in worship? It's not in our hymnal, and I don't think it's musically a very good song, quite frankly. But it has a great line, a great theme. It says, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. I like to think that the Apostle Paul lived every day with that as his theme song. The song hadn't been written yet, but that was Paul's theme song. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. It's certainly the song that comes bursting through the pages of Philippians. Similarly, in Galatians 2, Paul had written, I, I, the old Saul of Tarsus, was crucified with Christ on his cross, and it was then that I came alive. I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me, my life, my joy, my all. Can you say that? Can you really say that? Or is that just something that only apostles can say? The English translation of verse 19 here has Paul saying this, meaning all the events that are going on, his imprisonment and and everything else, and the judgment of Caesar upon him, this will turn out for my deliverance. The word for deliverance there is soter. It means salvation. And so we think Paul isn't just saying, I know that there's some guarantee that I'm going to walk out of this jail. That isn't the deliverance he was talking about. He was talking about a much bigger deliverance. The salvation, God's final salvation. He was saying, I will not be disappointed. God will save me. That will certainly come to pass. He's already told us that whatever God begins, God finishes earlier in this chapter. Paul didn't know whether he'd walk out of that jail cell, and we're a little bit shadowy, frankly, about the history. There are those who think he never did leave that cell and was executed right after. There are others who think, no, it's very reasonable to think there was a short period of freedom, and then he was arrested and, and then killed. We're not really certain. But what we do know is that the tribunal that was passing a judgment that would count against Paul was not the tribunal of Nero Caesar. It was the highest and loftiest tribunal of the judge of all, and that's what he was confident about. He knew how he would be judged by that judge. He knew that his eternal salvation was guaranteed to him by the work of Christ, and he said, I won't be ashamed, and you could substitute the word disappointed. I can't possibly be disappointed. Romans 1.16 has him say, I'm not disappointed in the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I have a superb confidence how all of this is going to come out, and I will not be disappointed. You say, oh, what an optimist. No, it's not about optimism. It's about faith placed in the right object. 
He trusted the Lord of heaven and earth, who certainly finishes what he begins in a believer. And Paul could say, my salvation is secure. It's inviolate. God will bring it to pass. I know it. I'll be delivered by my God. A Christian who claims that Christ is in me has access to that kind of confidence. Now, that doesn't mean you never have a disappointment in your life. It doesn't mean things don't go wrong in such a confounding way that you look and say, oh my goodness, how could this tragedy happen? How could life ever take this kind of an awful turn? How could this have come about? I'm very disappointed. But ultimately, you cannot be disappointed. Your salvation in Christ as a believer is not a far-off maybe. It's something that the Scripture elsewhere says is kept in heaven for you right now. Your place is reserved. It belongs to you. You're already seated in the heavenly places in Christ. So no matter how you're disappointed today, count on what Paul counted on, your final deliverance, your salvation. By God's grace, through the cross of Jesus Christ, paying the penalty of your sin and giving you a new life in Him, you will not, you cannot, you must not be found disappointed at the final day. Well, then we go to the real heart of this passage in verses 21 to 24. And here I have a second point that I thought over and thought over and reworked and reworked. And here's what I think it says. I believe the point here is our present life of waiting in the shallows with Christ leads us to a future life when we will plunge into His limitless depths. Quite often a man or woman, man and woman in love to preparatory to marriage When they're engaged, when they've made a promise to one another, as young adults, often they're in school or one's in the military service or something like that, that a separation is necessary. Many of you have experienced this. used to be we wrote letters. I don't know if anybody writes letters anymore, but we stay in touch, don't we, in a different way, electronically. The phone calls, the texts. You're far apart. You can't see each other for weeks, maybe months on end, and yet you're two separate people with one great interest, yearning for each other, more and more investing your life in that other person, concerned about that person, wanting to know that person, looking forward to the time when you will be able to live together and be as one. But until then, your your union is is not complete. And you rejoice in every scrap that you have of that person, every conversation, any message. Well, that's a little bit like Paul, or a little bit like any Christian, if you will. His relationship with Christ was so close that his existence was tied up as one with that of Christ, his Lord. He was preoccupied with Jesus, determined to know all he could know of Jesus, wanting to please the will of God in Jesus Christ, wanting to live by the values that Christ had taught and embodied. And in that sense, his daily life is no longer a Paul-centered life. It's a Christ-centered life. He was completely taken up and captivated by this far greater person than himself. 
I sometimes think we can only begin to understand what it means to have a Christ-centered life if we think about what it will ultimately be on the other side of death. Now, it's, it's all fragmentary. It's, we don't see Him directly. We have the sure witness of history, the sure witness of the Word of God. We must take hold of Him by faith, but it's all indirect knowledge. And yet, from splashing in the shallows, if you will, along the ocean's edge, the day is going to come when we plunge into the full depths. I chose that opening hymn that we sang in the service this morning, written by a Scotsman, Samuel Rutherford, one of the great men of the faith, who lived in a time of suffering when preachers like himself were not allowed even to go into pulpits. For some time he was jailed, and and other times he was under a sort of house arrest forbidden to preach. But Rutherford used his pen. He wrote letters to everybody. Go and get Rutherford's letters sometime. You will never find documents written by a man more saturated with Christ. And he wrote that line about Christ that we sang in the hymn, O Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. Then and there to an ocean fullness His mercy will expand and glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. Did you hear what he's saying? I've got a stream to drink from today. I've got a well to drink from, and that's good. It's cool. It's refreshing, and it promises great things to me, but I'm going to have an ocean, an ocean fullness of Christ. Rutherford wrote to another friend these words. He said, if there were 10,000 millions of worlds like ours, and as many heavens full of men and angels Christ would not be pinched to be able to supply our need. He would still fill each trusting soul to spill over to His glory. We might wonder how in the world does Christ deal with all the people of planet Earth? Rutherford was saying, if there were a million planet Earths, Jesus Christ would not be exhausted in supplying their need. Paul said... Life today means knowing Christ in that intermediate, veiled way that we're able to know Him, the, the way that a sinful mind can grasp Him. We need the Word of God. He's revealed here. We need the Spirit of God to, to bring faith alive in us, to, to grasp Him and take hold. But it helps us when we see that these fragments and these pieces of that relationship are going to be something so huge that it can't even be imagined on the other side of death. Then we'll know Him without a restriction. Then we won't even need faith. You understand? Faith is for the earth. You won't need faith in heaven. You'll know Christ face to face. You don't need faith when you've got face to face. You'll be absorbed in Him. You will worship Him instinctively, not because somebody said it's Sunday morning and let's sing this hymn number 482 or something. You will worship Him when you gaze upon Him. To live is Christ. To die is gain. That gain means freedom from the whole world of sin and evil. It means the end of care and anxiety and regret. It means 
that I'm going to become like him. Somehow I'll be transfigured in glory myself in a resurrection body. It means there'll be no separation between me and my Lord forever. You know, when we view death from our human perspective, how can we not see it as a tragic, terrible, sad disruption? People would say, why, the only sane human reaction anybody can have toward death is to avoid it run from it, treat it as a monster or an ogre. It's a, it's a devastator. It comes in the midst of our families and it ruins us. But yet viewed in relation to Christ, you see, death is an open doorway to union with Him forever. Second Timothy 1.10 has that apostle say, Paul says to Timothy, Christ Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Folks, it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that's realistic about death. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ among the, all the so-called religions of this world deals with death in a realistic way and says, our God came into this world in the person of His Son to die. And He did. And then He rose. So He's defeated it. Allah's done nothing about death. Allah's not a true God. No other God so-called has dealt with death. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, death is defeated, and it's now an open door. And so Paul says, you know, if you aren't in love with my Christ, I can't expect you to understand my attitude towards death. But I want you to know that my life today is full of confidence, joy, peace, assurance, purpose, all because of Christ. And guess what? After death, every one of those things is going to be multiplied by a factor of a thousand or more. Given a free choice, if you said, hey, would you rather have this life with all its cares and limitations or that future life, which do you want, Paul? Paul said, can you understand why I say? What kind of a choice is that? Of course, I'd rather be with Christ. And it's not that this man is suicidal. He's not celebrating death. He's not looking forward to the moment and Paul died by beheading. Well, it's a pretty swift and probably painless way to die, but who would look forward to dying that way? Nobody. But as terrible as the monster of death is, Paul said, look at what it brings. It's like a doorway of an entrance into a world so wide and high that when I'm there and consider, if I'm able to turn back and say, consider the world I came from before death, it would be as if I had lived that entire 70 or 80 or 90 years of my so-called life in a two-by-two-foot closet in the dark compared to the life that I'll have in the ocean fullness of Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, this apostle said. Why is there any wonder that he said that is better, much better, better by far, better to the farthest limit of estimation? I'm splashing in the shallows now. I'm going to dive into the ocean depths. Well, then he comes in verses 23 to 26 to wrap this up. 
And Paul speaks of being torn between these two realities. In in the absolute sense, life with Christ is the wonderful thing. He wants it. He'd be glad to go there now. But then he sort of stops and takes stock and says, now wait a minute. He takes a conscious turn and looks back at the life he's living and, and the people he's writing to and says, you know what? Although I desire that so much, I think God yet has things for me to do. He has more of my calling for me to fulfill. And therefore, thirdly, we say here that knowing Christ as Lord compels every believer to see time on earth to be invested as serving others for Jesus' sake. The apostle says, I'm not going to pretend this life is meaningless just because the one to come is so great and, and throbs with so much promise. I take joy in you people and in what I'm able to do and invest in you as I serve you and teach you and and watch you grow in Christ. The heart of Christian discipleship, you see, is not realized by that person who spends all his time mystically gazing forward into eternity and say, oh, isn't heaven great? We certainly should say that many times. But we can't spend all our time looking there. The heart of Christian discipleship involves a responsible investment in service to God's people in this life. They were mistaken, those folks in the early Christian centuries who actually went out under Roman persecution when, you know, they were dragging people away for arrest and and taking them to the stadium to throw them to the lions or, or maybe to light them on fire to be martyred. Did you know there were people that actually raised their hand and signed up? Because it was believed that the quicker you go to be with Christ, the better. And if you die a martyr, why, that must be worth some extra glory for your crown. And there were people that wanted it. They said, let me have the shortcut. Let me go to heaven now. But that's not the path of Christian discipleship. The path of Christian discipleship is to be found faithful in the calling and the place responsible to the people where God has put you. Whether that means you're a caregiver serving one shut-in person doing all the ignominious tasks that somebody has to do to assist that life. Whether it means you're a mom away at home and you're thinking half-enviously of your sisters who are out there with their MBAs doing great in the corporate world and you think, here I am with Four or five young ones in my house. Oh, woe is me. You've got a high calling. You've got a wonderful calling. And God is calling you to be faithful in that place where you are. I mentioned earlier this lady, Libby Brown Little and her husband Tom. They chose to obey a call to Afghanistan in the mid-1970s. All of us who've known them from afar. We just haven't understood it or been able to believe it. How could you stay there all that time? The Russians were there. Didn't they throw them out? No, because the Russians saw they were one of the few medical aid systems operating in the country. Well, then the Islamic system came in and closed in around them with great danger. They had three girls, raised them there. How do you do that? I didn't know Tom Little personally. I knew his wife. But I can well imagine that the only way they could tell themselves that we can be here 
It's because they knew from God with the kind of confidence that the Apostle Paul had that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this is where God wants us to live for Christ until our death becomes gain, as Tom found out just a couple days ago. Your great passion for the Lord Jesus Christ must be translated into a practical passion for other people for whom Jesus died, whether they're the two people you work with, whether they're your family members, your next-door neighbors, who they may be. God has people that he wants your hands, your feet, your voice to serve you because nobody else can serve them in exactly the same way that you can. The heart of Christianity is knowing Christ as your Lord, knowing God's pre-existent glorious Son who was present at the creation, God's historic Son, virgin-born, who was crucified on a Roman execution tree, God's Son who was dead as dead can be in a cold stone tomb who came alive in time and space history, in Palestine a long time ago. He is the supreme interest of a Christian's life. Jesus Christ is the one person without whom life is pointless and meaningless, if you don't know him. 1 Peter 1.8 says, although you have not seen him, you love him. Peter was marveling at these disciples. He had seen Christ. And he was writing and saying, I know you haven't seen him, and yet you love him too. And although you don't see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You know, every preacher who stays around a church long enough knows something. You know that Sunday after Sunday, month after month and year after year, you preach the gospel of Christ. And the great majority of the people in their hearts are saying, Amen, Hallelujah, thanks be to God. But you also know there's some people, and you don't even know necessarily who they are, who fill space. They fill pew space for months and years. And they would say to Paul, What are you talking about? To die is gain. I don't think to die is gain. I think to die is loss. And those people think that way because they haven't discovered the first part. They haven't bowed their lives, truly bowed their lives, and surrendered to the Lord Christ and said, yes, to live must be Christ. I haven't found it in anything else. Oh, God, I want to find out to live as Christ. Will you show me what that means? And, you know, every preacher wonders, what is it? Your pride? I don't know. I don't understand it. What is it that hinders some of you from bowing that way and surrendering that way and making that discovery that you would call Jesus my Lord, my God? Remember Thomas? He said, you people are all crazy. What are you talking about? Jesus is dead. 
And then he took hold that day and he said, my Lord, my God. He put Christ on the throne and he knew to live as Christ. I pray that you would bow in that way so that in your dying hour, if you've only got 12 words, you might be able to write your entire epitaph of faith and say, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And Christian, may you be able to say it after decades of living with him and add this, nothing has changed. Hallelujah. Father, I pray that your glorious gospel would dawn on some to whom it has never come home. It's always flown right over the head. There's always been that little invisible steel plate that has kept it from taking hold. Father, here is the heart of Christianity. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Thank you for making it so simple because we're simple people. I pray that your glory by your Son would be manifest in more and more lives as this wonderful thing is discovered. To your honor and praise. Amen.